The following program is a presentation of Grand Slam Ministries. Again, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Dan Scott Show, presented as you just heard by Grand Slam Ministries. I am Dan. This is our 46th overall episode of this brand new venture, and we are just incredibly excited to be with you for another week with uh, just an outstanding guest that we'll tell you about in just a moment. But I mentioned this is the 46th overall episode, it is the first episode. For those of you listening on KLNG in the Omaha, Nebraska, Council Bluffs, Iowa area, uh, a Wilkins radio affiliate, and we want to welcome you to the Dan Scott Show family. I am psyched about having KLNG as part of our show family because I'm very familiar with the Omaha area. In my previous life covering college baseball, uh, I covered the College World Series five different times between 2000 and 2010, primarily with the uh, Clemson University baseball team, three times out there as a writer and twice as a broadcaster with Clemson and had an absolute blast in the area. They do stake really, really well in Omaha. And uh, we're just uh, pleased to have you on board with us and hope you're going to enjoy what you hear this week and moving forward. And you've picked a great week to join us because our guest on this week's edition of the show is Lee Strobel, who, as many of you know, burst onto the Christian scene a number of years ago with his book, The Case for Christ. It later became a movie. He's written a number of books since then and has a brand new book out called Is God Real? We're going to be talking about that coming up throughout the course of the interview. But this is a wonderful follow-up to having Jay Warner Wallace on last week because, as you know, Lee Strobel was an atheist, was a high-profile journalist in Chicago, and got upset that his wife became a Christian and set out to try to disprove Christianity to her and ended up, throughout the course of his investigation, finding out that, yeah, the whole thing is real, it's true, and became a Christian himself, and he has been a wonderful ambassador for God for more than 40 years now. So we're very excited to have Lee Strobel on. You're going to hear from him coming up after the break. We want you to hear something about Grand Slam Ministries. We've got some other news to share a little bit later on in the show, but we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and get into the interview with Lee Strobel right after this. Is there someone in your life who has been a spiritual mentor? An influence so great that you'd love to find a way to honor them? For a gift of $200 or more to Grand Slam Ministries, you can dedicate a segment of the Dan Scott Show to that very special person. Honor someone who is currently in your life or remember the legacy of a loved one who has passed. Make your gift online at grandslamministries.org and we will send you an information form which will allow you to tell us all about this special person, how and why they were a spiritual influence, their favorite Bible verses, and anything else that you would like to share. In doing so, 
you'll be covering our cost of one week's production, helping ensure the Dan Scott Show stays on air and continues to share stories of loved ones like yours. In addition, you'll get your own copy of the program in which your loved one's story airs, either by MP3 or CD. Help the legacy of your spiritual mentor reach others with your gift of $200 or more today. Do so online at grandslamministries.org. That's grandslamministries.org. Like what you hear? Have a question or comment? Maybe a guest suggestion? Drop us an email and let us know. Dan at danscottshow.org. And now, back to the Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. All right, we are back and just getting things cranked up here on this week's edition of the Dan Scott Show. Just a reminder for those of you in the Omaha area on KLNG or anybody who perhaps is listening to us for the first time or you're early in your listenership and maybe don't know everything about us, the website is danscottshow.org. My bio is there. The Grand Slam Ministries page is there, and uh, the Affiliates and Archives page is there. I would highly suggest that you go to the Affiliates and Archives page. Not only can you find out where the show airs live on Saturdays and Sundays, but you can also access all of our previous episodes just by going to that page, Affiliates and Archives at danscottshow.org. Last week, was our interview with Jay Warner Wallace, the former cold case detective, former atheist who investigated his way to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the week before that was me sharing my testimony. And it's important for those of you to know the premise of this story is God working in people's lives and the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ. And my life is one of those stories because 11 and a half years ago, I was an absolute mess. And then Jesus came in and did a complete radical makeover of who Dan Scott is. So archives, uh, affiliates and archives page at danscottshow.org. Or if you would prefer to get there via a podcast site, just search Dan Scott Show anywhere you get your podcast and you'll find us. All right, let's get to this week's interview with Lee Strobel, author of The Case for Christ that became a movie. He's written a number of books since then. His new book is called Is God Real? And we're going to talk about that book and how you can get it throughout the course of the interview. But we started by talking about the fact that currently he is splitting time between his home in Houston and work in Colorado. I am. We uh, started a center at Colorado Christian University called the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics. And I gathered 40 PhDs from around the country, experts in sharing and defending the faith. And we created 91 courses on the undergraduate and graduate level um, and certificates, which are for people that don't want a degree, but just want to learn. And uh, people can take the courses fully online. The undergraduate and graduate courses are fully accredited. And uh, we're, in fact, we're just graduating some of our first master's degree students. So uh, that's got me going back and forth between Colorado and Texas. Unfortunately, it doesn't coincide with the weather because I'd like to be in Colorado in the summers and, and Houston in the winters, but it doesn't quite work out that way. Yeah. And then as we were talking before we, we started uh, rolling on the interview, the grandkid factor 
comes into exactly. play here, right? Yeah, people ask, well, why did you move to Houston? I'll say, well, there's only one word to explain it, grandkids. Mm -hmm. uh, so my two oldest grandchildren live here, and uh, we help homeschool them. And I have two other grandchildren in, Cal in uh, California. Uh, my son's a professor at uh, the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, a theology professor. So um, we don't get to see them quite as much, but uh, we get to see the kids here all the time. You know, it's it's just amazing the work God does in people's lives because you're talking about the 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 center in Colorado and you're talking about your son and and the the uh, the professorship but uh, do, doing yeah. what he's doing there and there was a point in time in your life where none of this would have even <laughs> remotely been on your radar. Well, for sure. I mean, I, I could never have imagined back when I was an atheist at the Chicago Tribune that uh, my life would take such a dramatic and radical uh, turn, 180 degree turn. Um, I, I just couldn't even have imagined it. But uh, now being where I'm at, I couldn't imagine not following Christ and, and, and um, following a call that I felt into ministry and, and uh, you know, the idea of having missed what God had in store for me, just, you know, that boggles my mind as well. The, the, the goodness, the, the, the absolute grace that, that God shows on us, is, is it hard yeah. to even remember what Lee Strobel was like beforehand? Yeah, you know, they did a movie on us in 2017, right. and, and uh, sometimes I go back and I look at that movie and I remember those days, because <laughs> um, there were some dark days there. I mean, I was a drunk, I was a narcissist, I was a um, you know, self-destructive lifestyle, uh, living an immoral life, and... Um, you know, you, you kind of, when you come to faith and, and God changes you over time, you want to kind of forget about all that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm grateful that God says he not only forgives, but he forgets, you know, our previous life. But um, but sometimes it's good to remember how God can take us this far and this fast um, through his grace and um, through his love. Uh, so it, 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 it it's why I can never sing Amazing Grace without tearing up. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get to those verses and especially the one where I've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, uh, no less days to sing his praise than when I first begun. Uh, that, that, always, that always gets me. It's interesting that while there's only one way to God, he uses many different paths to draw people to him. You came from yeah. the, the world of atheism. I am a preacher's son. And I, I did. I didn't get saved until I was forty-five years old. So you know, wow. just a little over eleven years ago. Wow. And it just goes to show you that that God can use any circumstance to draw yeah. people to Himself. You know that's true. And and we talk sometimes about suffering and the, the the that we have in this world and so forth. And yet, when times are going great, when everything's groovy, when everything is copacetic. Those are the times I, I find myself kind of drifting away and not praying as much, not seeking God as much. But of course, when the tough times come, I remember when I was on the verge of dying in 2011, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know if you're going to um, survive the week. Um, you know, then, then during those tough times, that's when you cling to God and, and you, you come to him. And so he can even use the difficulties in our life to draw us to himself and to... Um, 
keep that connection tight. Well, and, and the thing that we don't like to think about sometimes, not only can he use those circumstances, sometimes he sends those circumstances to, to draw us closer to him if, if maybe we're drifting away. Yeah, I mean, he uses suffering sometimes to uh, discipline his children. To, you know, we're on the wrong path. The most loving thing he can do is to discipline us, to get us back on the right path. Um, he does it to draw up him, people to himself, um, to uh, sharpen our character. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this world is a soul-fashioning machine. And, um, you know, our, our soul is, is, is shaped and fashioned by what we experience in this world. And if, if we had lived in a place of uh, no strife, no conflict, no uh, difficulty, we'd come out very differently than the way we do. We are visiting with Lee Strobel, and I promise you we're going to get to his new book, Is God Real Here, in short order. But I believe it was last week I was listening to Focus on the Family and, mm-hmm. and heard you sharing your testimony. And I, I don't know how old that that talk was, yeah. but there was just an incredible passion in your mm-hmm. voice. And I think, and I, I get to share my testimony at churches uh, not as often as you get to speak and maybe not as often as I would like, but often enough on God's timing. And, and there, there's always that one point where I finally surrendered everything to God when I talk about it. I always get emotional. I, I heard yeah. I heard passion in your voice. As yeah. often as you've given that testimony, have you ever lost a passion for doing it? I haven't because um, it's my story, and and God uses it to to um, bring people to faith. And um, you know, so I sort of when I tell a story, I just relive it. Mm-hmm. And by reliving it, it brings up the emotions, and it brings up the the gratitude to God and the, um, the amazement at his grace that he'd save even a wretch like me. Um, and, and so that kind of just wells up because I, I, I relive it every time I tell it. And, uh, but I could do it two times a day for the rest of my life because, you know, we each have a different style of sharing our faith, right? Uh, there's at least half a dozen different styles in the new Testament. And one of those styles is called the testimonial style. People who, um, God has gifted to tell their story in a way that will connect with other people and, and he can use to bring them to faith. And that happens to be one of my styles. And so um, it it syncs up with, with God. It's a personality he's given me. Do do you find when you share the testimony or or whatever speaking engagement you may have that, that people come up to you and, and say that there's part of that, that testimony, whether it's the atheism or whatever it is that, that yeah. really resonated with them, because there's hardly a time that goes by. And I talk about the battles I have with alcohol and with pornography and yeah. infidelity and all of those things. And, and invariably one or two men and sometimes Lee women yeah. will come up to me privately afterwards and say, that was my story. Do, do you get yeah. that? I do. I do. I talk about, uh, you know, the drinking problem I had is I wasn't an alcoholic per se, um, but I, I was, I, I drowned myself in alcohol, um, uh, as a young journalist, um, and people relate to that. They, they, they'll tell me their story and, and how that's got a grip on their life. And, um, I, I talk about the immorality that I was involved in. And, uh, I, I think that's the way God uses us to mm-hmm. connect with people on a very real level and honest level. And if we're willing to disclose the uncomfortable truths about who we were, 
Um, I think God uses that to connect with people who might otherwise uh, dismiss someone as just another religious fanatic. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And and then the the trick is being able to share those struggles and and those failures in a way that doesn't glorify the sin, yes. but glorifies the Christ. Because the Bible tells us there's pleasure in sin for a season. So you have to be careful about how you yeah. tell that story. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just try to be honest about the ill effects it has. I tell a story about how my Allison, um, when she was a toddler, when she was be playing with some toys in the living room, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in the room and shut the door. Mm. You know, she's going to be drunk again. She's going to be yelling and screaming and literally kicking holes in the walls of the living room. At least it's nice and quiet in here. And, um, you know, that's a hard thing to talk about. Um, but I can talk about how God redeemed that and how now today Allison is my best friend and, and uh, a, a follower of Christ and a, a writer, a novelist, a homeschooling coach and so forth and, <laughs> and uh, how God healed that relationship. But talking about it's difficult, but right. then people say, it'll come up and say, you know, that, that was my dad. And, um, um, you know, and, and oftentimes that dad has not yet come to faith. And that's particularly hard on them. That, that is one of the reasons that I love that God has led me in into this ministry with this radio show is because it is week after week, story after story after story of the amazing redemptive power yeah. of Jesus Christ. That things that we can't do on our own that we try, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But it, but it's it's the amazing redemptive power and grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I have a little section in the introduction to my book. I kind of bullet point about 10 stories of people I know personally whose lives were just radically transformed by Christ. And I celebrate each one. It's, it, it, there's nothing more exciting to me than a, a story about someone who found Christ and, their, and he changed their life in eternity. Um, I mean, well-known people like Evil Knievel that mm -hmm. I was able to uh, interact with who came to faith and his life was radically transformed. Um, and, and, and everyday folks, uh, intellectuals and, and college professors and so forth. Um, I, I, so I, I bullet point several of those little stories just to encourage people to say that, uh, you know, no one is beyond hope. And that's what, you know, when my wife, when I, we were, she was a new Christian, I was still an atheist. She met some women at work and she said to them, I don't have any hope for my husband. He's a hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He's never going to bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly woman named Sylvia put her arm around her shoulder, kind of pulled her to the side and said, Oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And um, she gave her a verse, Ezekiel 36, 26. that says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart mm -hmm. and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's the verse she prayed for me every single day during the two years that I did my spiritual investigation before coming to faith and uh, didn't know it at the time. But I'm so grateful for a praying wife who, who, who didn't give up on me. Visiting with Lee Strobel, uh, his new book is called Is God is Real? And we're going to get to that right after I ask you this question. The, um, the way that you came to it, the investigative journalist side always intrigues me because I've, I've been in the media, mostly sports media for 38 years. And I spent 11 years uh, as a, a newspaper uh, writer and, and sports editor. Yeah. You, yeah. Came, you came to this from a, 
journalistic investigative standpoint, trying to prove your wife wrong. Yeah. Uh, I have interviewed Jay Warner Wallace, who yeah. came to it from the the investigative side, another right. atheist. You did the foreword for his book, Cold Case Christianity. Yes. So God used two guys with two different sets of investigative skills yeah. coming from two different directions and brought you to the same conclusion. You know, it's funny you bring that up because that's so true. I mean, uh, you know, um, Jim Wallace is a good friend now, and um, his story parallels mine, and yet it's very different. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, he was trained as a cold case homicide investigator, and he used those skills to investigate the reliability of the Gospels and the truth of Christianity. I used my skills that I developed as an investigative reporter at the Chicago Tribune and trained in law at Yale Law School. Um, and, and so I looked at things a little differently, but it is funny how we came to the same conclusion and so many other people as well. You think of Josh McDowell. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of folks who have, um, um, used, uh, uh, Sir Lionel Luck, who was the greatest defense attorney who ever lived, uh, was a skeptic till he investigated it using his legal training, Simon Greenleaf, some Harvard law school in the 1800s, investigating the reliability of the gospels. Um, there's just so many people who've done that from different angles, as you say, mm -hmm. which really makes it interesting um, because, you know, people might connect better to what uh, Jim Wallace says and what I say uh, in terms of our own investigation. So, but we came to the same place. Thank God. It, it, exactly. It, it all pointed right to the, to the same yeah. destination. And, and that was Jesus Christ. As we, yeah. we visit with Lee Strobel who burst onto the Christian scene uh, with his book, uh, The Case for Christ. He's written a number of books since then, New York Times bestseller. And his new book is called, Is God Real? And uh, that's a question that a lot of people are asking now. So why did you write this book? And I understand that you came to this book maybe a little differently than you had some yeah. of your other ones. Yeah. Normally, when I feel like God's leading me to write a book, I I write a proposal, I take it to the publisher, we pray about it, we look at it, and then decide whether or not we should move ahead. Um, but this book was the only one in which the publisher came to me. And they said, our tech department has noticed something extraordinary. I said, what? They said, we've noticed that 200 times a second around the clock, someone on planet Earth is typing a question about God into a computer search engine. And often it's just simply, is God real? Mm. And they said, why don't you do a book on just the simple question, is God real? I thought, I love that. That really resonated with me. And so I was very enthusiastic about doing it. I really had a good time putting this together. And, uh, and so that's kind of the genesis of this book. Which is a question, obviously, you'd ask yourself many years ago. So I yes. guess eventually the, the natural progression is that you would write something like this. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it is the ultimate question of life. Uh, so much, in fact, I quote an atheist uh, uh, college professor uh, during a debate uh, in the introduction where he says, you know, let's be honest, if there is no God, if there is no creator, then a lot of things fall out of that. For instance, there is no afterlife. There is no absolute foundation for right and wrong. There is no free will, even though we think we have free will. I mean, he just went through the list of implications if God does not exist. And he was an atheist and he said, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. Um, but he's right. It is the ultimate question. Everything hinges on this. Uh, and, and, and of course, how we respond to it. So, um, and I think what I learned um, through the years is that over the last 50 years or so, 
there have been a series of discoveries in the area of science in particular, cosmology, physics, biochemistry, that make the case for the existence of God so much stronger than any time in history. Um, so, you know, our case for God being real today is stronger than it has ever been in world history, thanks to a series of discoveries made just over the last 50 years by scientists. And you don't hear a whole lot of scientists who are talking about that publicly, though. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, as you got into the book, two main objections came up. And so let, let's yeah. talk about them one at a time. And, and this is one that, that we hear all the time. If God is yeah. real, why is there suffering in the world? Yeah, and that is the number one question. I did a survey through the Barna organization a few years ago in which I asked a scientifically selected cross-section of Americans, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you ask him? And by far, the question was some permutation of why does God allow suffering? And so um, it, it is a profound question. Although, this little side thing on this, I've changed the way that I answer this question one-on-one -on -one when I meet people. Because, you know, it, it, I'll often ask someone as I get to know them, you know, if you could ask God any one question, what would you ask them? And often it's, well, why does he allow suffering? And then I used to launch into an explanation of why God allows suffering, but I don't do that anymore. What I do now is ask a follow-up question. I say, um, if you could ask God any one question, what would it be? And they say, why would God allow suffering? And then I ask, well, wait a minute. Of all the potential questions in the universe, why did you ask that one? And now they get to the personal issue. Mm -hmm. Now they say, because we lost a child in childbirth five years ago, and I want to know where was God when that happened. Or my wife was just diagnosed with cancer, and I want to know where is God in the midst of that. Now we're getting to the real issue, because this is rarely just a pure intellectual endeavor. This is a, a personal issue. And guess what? God sent a personal solution to this into the world in Jesus Christ. So that's just a little side thing about how I deal with it one on one. But um, I interviewed Dr. Peter Kraft for the book, um, and uh, he's a profound philosopher, um, Boston University. Uh, and I think he gives a, a profound answer to this issue. Um, one of the dangers of answering this question, of course, is that you give a 25 cent answer to a million dollar question if you try to do it in 25 words or less. But you know, you go back to the beginning, you say God has existed from eternity past as the Godhead, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit in a perfect relationship of love. And so when God decided to create humankind, he wanted us to be able to experience the greatest value in the universe, which is love. Well, the only way we could do that is if we were given free choice, because love always involves a choice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when my daughter was little, she had a, a what they call you, you may remember this, you may not even be old enough. Um, to remember this, but there was a, a thing called Chatty Cathy. Oh yeah. Remember that? Mm -hmm. So Chatty Cathy was a doll and it had a string on the back and you pulled the string and let go and the doll would talk to you. So my, my daughter had this doll. She pulled the string and the doll would say, I love you, <laughs> which is about the high tech back then. Exactly. So did that doll love her? Of course not. It, it, it was programmed to say that it, it was, it had to say that that was not love. A real love involves a choice and God gave us a choice. And what did we do with it? We walked away from God. We hurt each other. Um, moral evil and natural evil was introduced into our cosmos. And, um, you know, I can, so I can make the choice. I can take my hand and I can feed a hungry person, or I can take that same hand and pick up a gun and kill an innocent person 
But if I pick up a gun and my free will and kill an innocent person, it's a little disingenuous to say, God, why do you allow suffering in this world? Right. I mean, the problem is us. <laughs> um, so God did create a world in which there was a potentiality of evil and suffering. Um, but we're the ones that actuated that potentiality. And when you ask that question and it brings the focus back to the person who who is is asking the, yeah. the why is there suffering, I, I would imagine that they probably don't like that very much because they, nobody well, they, they don't like to really to, to delve inside themselves. I don't think any of us do naturally. Yeah, there are some who will kind of uh, recoil at that point. They yeah. don't want to be personal. But there are others because at that point, my answer to them is not a five-point sermon on why God allows suffering. I could give them that. But my answer at that point is put my arm around their shoulder and to weep with them and to empathize with them and to sympathize with them and to be Jesus to them in that moment. Right. And and it's amazing how many times they'll break down weeping and, and, and say, um, you know, I, I can't get over this. I can't get past this. This is this is ruining my life. And and um, so I found often it's a breakthrough moment for them where where if they're willing to go there and really get to the emotional reason, the psychological reason why they're keeping God's at arm, God at arm's length. Um, it can be a breakthrough. They can get past the spiritual sticking point that's mm -hmm. holding them up in their journey toward God. Yeah, that willingness is the yeah. key. The, the other question that you address in the book is, if God is real, why is he so hidden? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A few years ago, uh, in 2022, John Steingard, who was uh, among young Christians, very well-known singer, he was the lead vocalist for a band called Hawk Nelson. And he very famously walked away from Christianity because of this issue. He said, God is too hidden. If God is real, he wouldn't be so hidden. And so I, I, I can't believe in him anymore. And I hasn't become an atheist, but he's, he's walked away from historic Christianity at this point. Um, and, and I think it's an example of what... Um, philosophers tell me, which is this is the number two issue now. After why he's got a lot of suffering, the number two issue that people raise is, well, why is he so hidden? And I think we can look at that a couple of different ways. I interview an expert in the chapter, and he makes an interesting comparison because he used to be a uh, aspiring um, pro baseball player, this mm -hmm. uh, scholar that I interviewed. And uh, he said, so I look at it like a baseball game. Um, the pitcher is God and the catcher is us. And he said, where does the real problem lie? Does it lie with the pitcher or does it lie with the catcher? And he says, I think biblically, it lies with the catcher. I said, what do you mean? He said, look at Romans 1 verse 20. It says that we can see from creation, clearly it says, that God exists. We can see his divine characteristics, his invisible nature. We can see it through creation. Um, to the extent that we're, we're without excuse in terms of knowing him. Mm -hmm. But what do we do? We suppress that. In fact, the, the Greek there, the imagery of the Greek is like a petal. So the awareness of God creeps up in our life. We see evidence for him, but we press it down like a petal and suppress it. And then it begins to creep up again and we press it down again and it creeps up again. And we press it down again. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm open to God. If he would just show himself to me, I'm open. To but the truth is you're only open to him if he comes to you on your terms mm -hmm. or, um, you know, you've got maybe a deep-seated psychological issue that's keeping God at arm's length, maybe a father issue. And you don't want to know a heavenly father because your earthly father has abused you or disappointed you or abandoned you. 
So there's a lot of dynamics there, but um, I think the question of God's hiddenness may lie a lot of it in us. But of course, God being omniscient, if he is indeed omniscient, I think we have evidence he is, um, he would know the exact right amount of revealing himself in order to reach the maximum number, the highest percentage of people. Uh, I think he would know where that line is because he has to walk a line. If it, He has to be apparent enough for those that seek him that they'll find him. Because in Jeremiah and Hebrews, it says God rewards those who seek him. Um, and if we seek him, we'll find him. If we knock, he'll open. Uh, maybe not yet, but he will. Um, and so he has to make himself uh, um, apparent enough for people who seek him, but also hidden enough for people that don't want to find him. Um, so that their free will can be honored, and that um, you know, if you don't want, if you don't want to know God, you know what? That's your choice. You don't need to. You don't. You know, you won't find him. Bible says not that everyone finds him, but those who seek him find him. So um, there's a lot there to unpack, and I think um, Kenneth Samples, who I interviewed in the chapter, right. does a remarkable job of of uh, analyzing this from a bunch of different angles. Um, you know, the the other thing is. Um, if you look at those moments in history where God made his existence um, obvious to everyone, for instance, the parting of the Red Sea, the guiding of the uh, Israelites through the desert, where his, 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 uh, he, he was so obviously real, um, what happened to them? Did they, <laughs> did they fall down and worship? No, they fell into apostasy again. And, and so who's to say that even if God put a neon sign in the sky and said, I'm here, I'm here, who's to say uh, that there wouldn't be a lot of us who would say, yeah, 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 that's special effects. Yeah, I just don't believe, um, you know, because God's goal is not that we believe he exists. God wants us to not just believe, but to receive, as John 1, 12 says, receive him as our forgiver and leader receive his free gift of grace and become a child of God. That's different than just merely yeah. believing that he's real. Well, and you kind of transitioned into what I was going to go with because I'm a baseball guy. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and the one a baseball slang, another word for catcher is receiver. Yeah. Oh, no, that's good. I didn't. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be. I'm you use to, that. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Right there. Feel free. All great ideas are stolen, Lee. You know that. Yeah. There you that's go. what my first newspaper editor told me. Right. The, the other, the other thing, um, when when people bring up objections about like the crossing of the Red Sea, one of the things that I've heard was, well, they actually crossed in about ten inches of water. <laughs> And, yeah, and, right. and 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 then the response I heard was even better. Well, then it's an even greater miracle because a million Egyptian soldiers drowned in ten inches of water. Right. You, you know exactly. So exactly, it, it is what I, I want to ask you about atheism today. I, I interviewed yeah. uh, comedian Jeff Allen, and I don't know if you've heard his testimony or not, no. but but his testimony is incredible. Uh, drug addict, alcoholic atheist self-described oh. atheist and, and he got hooked up with a with a guy who he played golf with who got him on all, all these great courses and 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 it turned out much to his chagrin the guy was a christian oh. and and he would talk to him about the bible and 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 jeff at one point said you know, just, just stop it with the bible i don't believe that nobody believes that and and the guy said why don't you believe it and he said well he said i just i just don't and he said well then you're not an atheist you're a moron 
and, and, and the explanation for that was to be a true atheist, you would have had to have seriously investigated all of the different religions and come to a conclusion that there is no God. He said, you've just decided it's not true. That doesn't make you an atheist. Atheist, it makes you a moron. I'm not calling all atheists in a blanket statement morons, but what I'm getting at through that story is do you find that perhaps that is more true than maybe we think that people in one sense may not truly be atheists because they've never really considered all of the evidence? Well, ironically, when you think about it, to be an atheist, to be a true atheist, you would have to be God because you would have to be omniscient to know all the potential evidence and and to consider all the potential contingencies. You'd almost have to be God yourself to come to the conclusion there is no God. So I find when I get into conversations with atheists, they very quickly transition to um, agnostics. Um, And they try to um, water down the the definition of atheism Mm -hmm. by saying, oh, atheism isn't the conviction or the belief that there is no God. Atheism is just lacking God belief. I lack God belief. Well, really, then that means my dog is an atheist. He lacks God <laughs> belief. I mean, it's just so <laughs> the, the furniture here is an atheist. Right. It, it lacks a God belief. Uh, so they try to somehow redefine atheism. I, I go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that talks about, you know, the, the definition, the true definition of atheism. But um uh, so you're right. I, I think most people are truly more in the agnostic camp. And, you know, what you said in many ways was true of me as an atheist, because I just thought that the mere concept of an all loving, all powerful um, creator of the universe just seemed absurd on the surface of it. it wasn't worth my time to check out. Um, and then but then I learned um, uh, I started to study science from skeptics, and I uh, was taught that neo-Darwinism explains the origin and diversity of life. So God is out of a job. And then I took a course in college from a skeptical professor on the historical Jesus, and he convinced me that he can't believe anything the Gospels tell you about Jesus. So as I kind of learned from skeptics, I was taught that it wasn't true. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I interviewed um, Hugh Hefner. Uh, the founder of Playboy magazine mm-hmm. many years ago uh, about his beliefs about God. And um, so I said, what do you believe about God? And he was a very bright guy. He was a horrible hedonist who corrupted our culture in many ways. I was no fan of Hugh Hefner, but I had a TV show at the time. I got the opportunity to interview him. So I said, what do you believe in God? He said, well, yeah, kind of a minimal belief in God as the great, um, the great unknown uh, maybe the cause of everything, some gen, but certainly not the God of Christianity. He said, that's too childlike for me. And I brought up the resurrection and I, he, and his eyes, eyes lit up. He said, Oh, he said, if we had any real evidence for the truth of the resurrection, that changes everything that causes a series of dominoes to fall. Many wonderful things become true. It means there's a life after death and all kinds of wonderful things. If it were true. And I asked him, well, have you ever investigated the evidence for the resurrection? Well, no, and they never had, never. And I go, whoa, <laughs> really? If, if you're saying that everything depends on that, if, if so many things are contingent on that being whether or not it's true or false, wouldn't you think it'd be worth your time to investigate? I actually gave him a copy of my book, The Case for Christ. 
And uh, we had a wonderful off-camera conversation about the gospel. Um, but uh, I find that's true of many people. Many skeptics will ratchet up their skepticism. They'll fold their arms around over their chest and, 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 and just dare you um, by raising their skepticism to unreasonable levels. Mm -hmm. There was a, a, a physician, an atheist, who wrote an article for Skeptic Magazine. And in it, she said, what would it take for me to believe there's a God that did a miracle? Well, she said, if there was a chicken that could read and then it could beat a grandmaster at chess, maybe I would start to think that, that something miraculous was going on. Really? <laughs> Is that what it takes? Um, and so I think sometimes they ratchet. And so once I got into a conversation with a skeptic and I, he said, I want to talk to you about the existence of God. I said, great. Um, I'll talk to you if, um, if you can prove to me that you're really John Smith. That wasn't his name, but whatever right. his name was. And he said, well, I'll show you my driver's license. Well, I said, driver's licenses can be altered. They can be counterfeit. So I can't believe that. He said, well, I'll, I'll, my wife will come tell you. Well, she could be paid. How do I know it's your wife? And she could be paid to tell you that your friends could lie. And, to, and so I could shoot down every effort he would make to mm -hmm. prove his simple thing like his name. And all I was demonstrating is I can ratchet up my skepticism every bit as high as you can. But that's not how we deal with life. We don't deal with life that way. We take a step in the same direction the evidence is pointing every day of our life. And, and that's what we do with faith in Christ. I just want to make it perfectly clear. I was not calling you a moron, but, <laughs> but, but I, was, I was sharing that. Well, you wouldn't be the first. Yeah, so. well, yeah, we, we, we don't have time to go into what that would be like on, on my side. Uh, just a couple of more things, uh, and, yeah. and, and we'll get into wrap-up mode here. Uh, what is the apologetics pyramid? Well, I interviewed um, uh, Chad Meister. I've known Chad. Chad is one of the most prominent Christian philosophers in the world. I I knew Chad when he was just going to graduate school in Chicago, and Mark Middleberg and I, who headed up the evangelism ministry at our church, um, brought him in as a volunteer to lead our apologetics department, um, a volunteer group of people studying apologetics. And so he went on to get his PhD and become one of the most prominent philosophers in the world. And um, uh, one day back then, I was preaching and about the resurrection, an atheist came up to me afterwards uh, in the auditorium and said, hey, that was really fascinating. Can we get together? I'd like to talk to you some more about it. And I said, golly, I'm leaving the country for three weeks next tomorrow morning. Uh, but my friend Chad will talk to you. And I brought Chad over. Chad said, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. So they made an agreement that the guy, the atheist, would come over to Chad's house at seven o'clock on Friday night. So Chad's thinking, how do I, how do I connect with this guy? And he came up with this idea of a pyramid that starts at the broadest level, what is truth? And then it goes to the next level, what are the possible worldviews? Then it goes to the next level, what about theism? Then it goes to revelation, how do we know the Bible's true? Then it goes to um, um, the resurrection. Then it goes to God, the gospel. So it's kind of a, it's, it, it's, a, it's a theoretical pyramid that starts at the broadest issue, what is truth? And, and kind of tapers until you get to the question of the gospel. So they started going through this pyramid at 7 p.m. over dinner at his house. And by midnight, that atheist was a follower of Jesus. Wow. Um, so in the book, I interview Chad Meister, and he goes through that pyramid. What is truth? Well, Pilate asked that. You know, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Uh, you know, that's truth. 
And so we talk about relativism and all, all these things. And then we get to the question of worldviews. There's only three possible worldviews. Atheism, there is no God. Theism, there is a God. Or pantheism, everything's God. And we analyze those from two viewpoints. Livability, can you really live this out? And secondly, logic. Does it, is it internally inconsistent to the degree that it's, it's self-refutes? You know, it refutes itself. Mm -hmm. And then we go from worldviews to theism and so forth, and we look at the gospel. So it's a fascinating way to start at a very broad issue and taper down and then ultimately deal with the gospel itself. You know, your PR people do a great job of putting uh, information together, and they, they have this list of suggested questions, and I've used yeah. some, and, and I, I usually like to stay away from those and go down sure. my own path, which sometimes gets me in trouble. But there, there, there's, there's one specific question on this list that, that I did want you to address before we wrap up, because you've written so many books on the evidence yeah. for Christ and Christianity. Yeah. And, and, and the question on this sheet of paper says, do you, Lee Strobel, after all these years, after everything you've written, mm -hmm. do you still struggle with doubts yourself? That, that's, uh, a, that's a question that I probably yeah. would not have thought to ask. Yeah. You know, it, it depends on how you define doubts. Mm -hmm. Have I ever had, as a Christian, a doubt that threatened my faith? No. Have I had questions? Of course. Uh, you know, um, there are unresolved issues that I'm not going to get resolved till heaven. I'm going to have my hand raised in heaven. Hey, Jesus, how does this Calvinism and, mm -hmm. and uh, Arminianism thing fit together? Could you just kind of explain that once and for all? Um, you know, there's some things we're not going to get resolved in this world. And, right. and they, they don't raise doubts about the truth of Christianity, but they do raise questions. And, and it's okay to hold those in tension as long as the overall thrust of the evidence points toward the truth of the faith, which I believe it does. So it's logical to say there are going to be some issues we're going to hold in tension until we can get them resolved in heaven. Um, so they're not fundamental questions. They're on secondary issues. Um, that we all like to kind of debate and talk about, and, and, and uh, it consumes a lot of Christian conversation, but they don't really amount to much in, in, because they don't ultimately challenge the key question, which is, who is Jesus? Um, did he die for us? How do we receive him as our Lord and Savior? Is heaven real? And so forth. Um, so yeah, I do have questions. And, and, uh, and you know what? So did John the Baptist. You know, he gets arrested. He's thrown in prison. Now he's not so sure. Right. Is Jesus the one we've been waiting for to wait for somebody else? So he sends some buddies to ask Jesus. And how does Jesus react? Does Jesus get mad that he had questions? No. Does Jesus get mad that he even had some doubts? No. He says to those followers of John, quote, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The new sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, go back to John. Tell him about the evidence you've seen with your own eyes that convinces you that I am the one I claim to be. So they go back and they do this. But it's important for us to understand this did not disqualify John from any role in the kingdom of God because he had a doubt. He had a question. It's okay for us, as, even as Christians, to have questions as long as we do what John did and we pursue answers. Uh, because I really do believe for, mo for the key questions of life, we do have answers to satisfy our heart and soul. At the end of the day, when people read this book, what do you hope they're, they're thinking at the end of it? I think two things. I hope that Christians who read the book will walk away 
deeper convinced of the truth of their faith, that God will use it to, to root their faith even deeper in their life, and that they will be equipped to be able to share that evidence with others. Um, you know, I was interacting with a guy online who was a grandfather, and he said his six-year-old granddaughter went to public school. She was on the playground at recess, and the other kids were taunting her and making fun of her because she believes in God. Oh, you believe in fairy tales. You still believe in make-believe. Our kids and our grandkids are going to be challenged in their faith in this hostile world in ways that other generations have not been. And so we need to be equipped to understand why we believe what we believe so we can equip our kids, so we can equip others to understand that and, and to be able to defend the faith. And then I hope, my, my real hope is that Christians will read the book, it'll deepen their faith, it'll equip them to share it and, and defend it better. But then I hope they give the book away uh, to a neighbor, to a brother, to a uh, colleague at work, to someone who is spiritually confused and say, you know what? I know you've got questions about faith. This guy, he was a skeptic too. He was an atheist, but here's what he discovered. And, and um, why don't you give it a read and then we can talk about it. I actually have questions in the book, in the back, a discussion guide, if you want to even start a little small group mm -hmm. and talk about these issues. But, you know, I'm an evangelist at heart, like, like you, Dan. I want to see people come to faith. I want to see their lives and eternities change. And so I help people give it away at Christmas or for a birthday present or whatever, but let's get it into the hands of people whose eternities are hanging in the balance. See, that tells me that your motivation is different from your publisher because your publishers say, no, 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 give it away. Tell them to buy the book. And, and <laughs> so. I always I always tell people, hey, if you want to read my books, they're free at any local library. Just go to the library and check them out. They won't cost you a penny. That's fantastic. Lee, as, as we wrap up, is there is there anything else uh, that, that we need to, to let people know about? Is God real? Well, Dan, it's just been fun talking to you. I've really enjoyed our time together. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that today in America, you know, in 1966, when my, I met my wife for the first time, we were 14 years old. And in 1966, 98% of American adults said God is real. God exists. You know what the number is now? 81%. Um, and, and it's the lowest among the youngest generation and the oldest generation, mm. people born before 1946, interestingly enough. So there's a lot of skepticism in our culture, but ironically, we live in an age where we have more evidence for the existence of God, for the truth of Christianity than we ever have had. And so let's seize this opportunity and let's share it far and wide with those we meet. Once again, the new book is called Is God Real? You can get it wherever you you buy books. And uh, we thank Lee Strobel for spending time with us on the show this week. Quick break, and we'll come back and wrap it up right after this. Teenage boys and young men today are in crisis. Statistics show that a home without a father or male role model present is the single biggest indicator of poverty, behavior issues, drug and alcohol abuse, criminal activity, and yes, imprisonment. At Grand Slam Ministries, one of our core missions is developing a mentorship program to teach boys how to become strong Christian men and then teach those men to be the biblical husbands, fathers, and church and community leaders the Bible calls us to be. We need your prayers, we need your ideas, and we need your support. Visit our website, GrandSlamMinistries.org, to find out more about our mentorship mission and prayerfully consider how you may be able to assist us. Again, that website, 
is GrandSlamMinistries.org. Follow us on social media. Search Grand Slam Ministries on Facebook and Grand Slam for God on Twitter. And don't forget Dan's personal and public figure sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're listening to The Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. We're back with just a couple of minutes to wrap things up on this week's edition of the show. Thanks to Lee Strobel again for joining us. The book, Is God Real?, available wherever you get your books. I highly recommend that you grab a copy of that. Hey, wanted to just say thank you to Dabo Sweeney's All-In Team Foundation. They deemed us worthy of a $2,500 grant in their 2023 distribution. We were able to pick it up last week at the awards dinner. It was uh, very kind of them to do that, and uh, our commitment to them is to make sure that we use those funds for God's glory to help grow what we are doing here. We need your help as well. And uh, I know that this time of year, there are many, many organizations out there who are vying for whatever spare money that you have in your budget. And we certainly don't want to take away from any of those organizations. But if God should lead you after prayerfully considering it, we're looking for 200 people to give $25 a month and 200 people to give $10 a month. And if you'll make a monthly or even a one-time gift, we have a cool little bookmark that we want to send you as a small token of our appreciation. It's got a thank you from us on one side and the 23rd Psalm on the other. So you can always have that comforting scripture with you no matter where you go. You can slip it into your Bible and have it all the time. DanScottShow.org is the site. You can uh, click the tab to donate there, navigate to the Grand Slam Ministries page. You can donate there and um, all of it is pretty much self-explanatory, and it automatically generates a tax receipt for you as well. So prayerfully consider doing that. Next week on the show, former big league pitcher Randy Lurch battled alcoholism to the point that he is living right now with cirrhosis of the liver. But what God has done in his life, simply amazing. We'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Dan Scott. God bless you, and so long, everybody.